Good morning. It is Monday, the 6th of July, 2020. Uh, and it has been extremely hot where I live. But we're getting through the summer, and things are what they are. We, where I live, we're getting lots more coronavirus cases. Finally, some people that I know here have had some coronavirus, and so we're trying to help them out as what we can. And But yeah, it's happening. It's hitting. So... Be aware of that. These are just kind of these little historical post dates as we go. We're just kind of praying that uh, God continues to heal and restore people. There have been just a few, very handful, small cases of people that have uh, died to the virus, which is absolutely tragic and sad. And, and our thoughts and our prayers, I know thoughts and prayers don't mean much, but still, um, we empathize with those who have lost loved ones through this pandemic that's going on, and so, Lord have mercy, really, Lord have mercy. Um, okay, so today we're talking about violence still, it's going to be theme for a while, and <clears throat> we've gone through the beginning of Genesis, kind of talking about the beginning, the Genesis of violence, uh, specifically the story of Cain and Abel, um, what happened with them. Uh, how God treated Cain and then how violence grew after the days of Cain starting a city and Enoch and how with the growth of humanity there's a growth of violence upon the earth a growth of corruption upon the earth and so God uh, basically did a restart wiped everybody out and then with the flood of Noah and then started again and it doesn't take long for violence to fill the earth and God even admits it himself says listen this is within man's heart from his youth And so now, at this point, what we're looking at is, I want to talk about violence just from the perspective of God, because as you'll see in just a second, um, there's a few different ways to look at it. We have, obviously, things in the Old Testament that point towards God using violence quite a bit, and then we have things in the New Testament which maybe point to something different. And I'm not going to say anything more about this point. But to really get into this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use a technique, a philosophical technique that is old as the Greeks, perhaps even older, um, called a dialectic. What is a dialectic? I'm not talking about a dielectric, all you capacitor fans out there. This is a dialectic. And what this means is that really two points of view are going to be taken, considered, weighed, Um, and presented against each other, and depending what form of dialectic you want to look at, there might be a synthesis or some way of coming to a better understanding by taking two different points of view. Uh, For example, how does this work? This is not the typical exposition where you say, hey, here's here's a thesis, here's an idea, here's a topic, and I'm going to now defend this idea with some various plays of logic, evidence, support, da-da-da-da, and da-da, there it is. No, that's not what this is. I remember back in high school, <coughs> my old English teacher, teachers belaboring this point, the five-paragraph essay, you got a topic sentence, you have this thesis that you, you put out there, like, the sky is blue, and then you're going to talk about three supports for why the sky is blue. Kids always ask, why is the sky is blue? Uh, we have lots of photo documentation for why the sky is blue, and you can look in historical records, people have always pointed to the sky is blue. Conclusion, the sky is blue, thank you very much. And I always thought that was kind of a 
dumb way to go about it uh, because it really means you're not allowed to really consider truth. Really what you have to do is you got to pick a side, you got to pick a, a statement, and then you got to defend it, which is not even scientific. Scientific method is like, I got a, I got a statement here, and I'm going to try to tear it down. I'm actually going to try to prove the opposite. And uh, if I can prove the opposite, that means it's not true. Good, then we can throw that out and move on to something that maybe is a little bit better. But no, this is different. This is like, oh, I'm going to make this statement because, and then I'm going to defend it. And then everything that goes against that statement, I'm going to ignore it. Just ignore it. (laughs) And that drove me nuts because I thought, no, there's more to truth than just uh, saying broccoli is the best vegetable ever. I don't even believe that. But you got to defend this dumb thing that says broccoli is the best vegetable ever, and you can't even begin to look at other evidence to say something different. It's like, no, I guess got to defend that. And and sadly, sadly, uh, while this is an important thing to be able to defend a point or to sustain a point or to make a clear argument for one thing, while that is important, it leaves lacking a lot of the process of coming towards truth. And that's really the realm of philosophy, trying to figure out what is reality what is truth how do you know what truth is and I'm not going to get into all that but this is a technique um, I'm borrowing from philosophy and I'm not going to get into I'm, and I'm not an expert in dialectics by any stretch of the imagination or the different types of dialectics or anything like that but what I want to do is I want to instead of just saying hey this is how it is what I want to do is I want to I'm going to role play and I'm going to kind of come to two different sides on this topic of how God uses, sees violence, is violent, is not violent, um, in terms of how we see the biblical record. This first episode, I'm going to be taking the position and saying that God is violent. Um, and I'm going to really kind of go into defending that. And then the next episode, I'm going to say God's not violent. And then hopefully, maybe I'll do a third episode kind of looking at both these, but my goal really is to leave this with you. Because we live in a day and age where, not just this day and age, but it's been always, that people just want to let you not think. They prefer to think for you and say, broccoli is the best vegetable, here's why, believe me. And now I want to say, look, here's two different positions, you got to figure it out from here. And I think that's a really good thing, because when we start to say, no, God's got to be this way, and we try to defend it, we cut the conversation off with God. We don't begin to really ask him questions like, well, well, wait a minute, how are you really? Um, And what that does mean is that if we have a certain preference of how we want God to be, we we begin to cut off certain parts of his character and we begin to cut off certain parts of who he is and how we relate to him. And if there's things that we prefer about God that don't line up with that, then we begin to throw it out. And that's, that's a scary thing. So, um, let's, let's have a dialectic and if we're going to, I'm going to do my best to role play here and not try to synthesize that is to try, try to take concepts from both, both sides of this, because if there really were both sides <clears throat> and bring them together, I'm going to do, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to do my best here to try to do that. So I'm going to try to do a five, five paragraph essay. Even then I'm going to go, I'm going to start looking at things from different angles, even within that five paragraph essay, which is kind of a no, no, but still I'm doing that. And then, uh, hopefully you can figure it out from there. And this is a great topic of conversation to begin with. 
with God. So, here it is. God of war, the God of violence. Oh, and just one thing to be quick. I'm going to be very clear here that what I'm talking about is God's perspective, being, essence, actions on violence, not man's. So if you listen to this and be like, yes, this is why I'm going to go and shoot a bunch of people. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God. And we'll, we'll get a little bit into what our part in this is. Uh, but for the most part, I'm going to be talking about God. Because I feel like if we can understand God well, then we can, we can get our heads around what we're supposed to do. But in this case, just because I argue that God is violent does not mean that you should be violent by any stretch of the imagination. And it would be very difficult to get to that point. So um, I'm going to make that point in the part that God is violent, just to be clear. So here we go. God of war, the God of violence. When we look at the Bible... The Bible is a book that is drenched in blood. There's no way to pick up this book and start reading its pages, both from Old Testament and even into the New Testament, that you can say that this is a book that is only about the preservation of life. There is a lot of life taken. There is much blood that is shed. I'm going to jump into the modern perspective on this immediately because this is what everyone's going to go to quickly. Atheists, in particular, love, love to use this fact to try to discredit the Bible, discredit religion in general, to try to discredit anything. Uh, because they look at this, and I've, I looked it up, I was kind of curious, like, how many people do we have recording of being killed by God in the Bible? And our atheist friends have done that homework for us, and it's, it's a large number where the numbers have been recorded. The flood, there's no numbers recorded of how many people were killed. Uh, so we really don't know. But in the recorded numbers we're talking about in the Old Testament, we're getting up to a number just under 3 million. Just under 3 million. Uh, it's like 2,850,000 something. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. And we're talking about ways that God has killed people, either directly saying they, they, he killed them, he smote them, uh, or he used uh, elements to fulfill his purpose, either using armies, using natural disasters, using animals, or something of the sort. There are ways, or the angel of death, there are ways that God has killed many, many, many humans. Atheists which come from a Western background and culture. Uh, I'm not going to get into the whole problem of atheism right now. But from the cultural perspective from which they are analyzing the world, this seems cruel, this seems wrong, this seems evil. And even to most Christians, when you start to talk about this kind of stuff, it begins to make us feel a little uncomfortable. And it begins to point to, quote-unquote, a problem. And even as I was doing some research for this, I was looking into it, and most, I feel like most theologians couch this in the words, using them directly as a problem or the problem. And what is this problem? The problem is that if we look at the Old Testament, just glancing over it, it seems that God 
is using violence quite liberally. <laughs> to put it mildly, there's lots of violence going on. There's lots of blood being shed. And then we get to Jesus, and Jesus is like, love your enemies. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Hold up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What kind of mixed message is this? And so there seems to be this quote-unquote problem where God is one way in the Old Testament, and then he's a different way in the New Testament. Um, and this is not a problem even in modern minds. Even soon after the beginning of, Christia- uh, beginning of Christianity, we see people like Origen who's trying to reconcile this. We see the Gnostics, some Gnostics, trying to say, well, let's just throw out the Old Testament and stick with Jesus as we understand to be the Spirit. Uh, and, and they don't like this idea of violence because it, it rubs them the wrong way. And so it's just easier to be like, no, let's just ditch this and say this is incorrect or we don't understand this well and we'll just throw it out and we'll just focus on the stuff that makes us feel good uh, and focus on that. Um, and I will say they, you know, even within a lot of liberal circles, there, there are ways that they're going to say, well, okay, you know, the, this, this, these killings in the Old Testament, these are just uh, ways to consider that God is, you know, speaking figuratively. This is how we need to treat the evil within our own hearts. So when God says go out and annihilate this people, really what he's talking about is we need to go and annihilate the evil within ourselves. Um, and we need to completely hack it away 100%. He's not talking about going down or actually mowing down little people. No, 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 no. God would never do that. Uh, This is just how we need to treat sin. And this is just a figurative story of how we can do this within our own hearts. Um, but I want to take a pause for a second or step back from this whole problem issue before and, and talk about why, why is this a problem to begin with? What is the concern that if we look back and we see God acting in such a way that may not be at first glance, hundred percent congruent. I'm going to come back to this point, uh, with the life and ministry of Jesus how is it possible that these things are put in the same book and done under supposedly the same hand of the same deity? But let me talk about our perspective first before I get to God's perspective. Why is violence an issue to us? I think first of all, it's because anyone listening to this has some sense of empathy within them. And I would say a lot of the empathy is even a result of, even if you have no belief in God, it's a result of Christian teaching that, you know, we need to love our enemies. We need to think better of others than ourselves. And so begin to take the position of other people um, before we begin to take the position of selves. And even in the most basic and selfish sense, if I read a story about how God killed some people, it's very easy for me to begin to think, if he did that to them... What keeps him from doing it to me? If I see God acting violently and destroying lives, killing people, wiping out people, causing them to be oppressed, causing them to be destroyed and hurt, um, what is it to keep it? Keep that God doing the same? What looks to be evil, or what looks to be something I do not wish to partake in? What keeps that from happening to me? And that is a very valid question. We are scared of suffering. We are scared of pain. We are fearful 
of death. And that fear of death means that we would prefer to avoid all sorts of violence. We would prefer to not have it within us and among us. Because that means we have to confront the reality of our own mortality and stare it in the face and be like, that guy that's bleeding out on the sidewalk and dying in front of my eyes, that could be me. Or, that guy that's bleeding out in front of the sidewalk, that's my own son. I can't deal with this. This is too tragic. This is horrible. This is somebody that I love. This is my life, part of my life within this other person, and now they're being taken from me. They're being taken from this world, and all the joy and the life and all the beautiful things that they are is draining out before my eyes as their blood leaves their body. And that's horrible. It's sick. Um, nobody wants to go through that, and the people that have gone through that, it scars them for life. And in no way, shape, or form am I trying to, in anything I'm going to say today, even though I'm taking the side of, of a violent God, am I trying to say, is that good? Um, but what I am trying to say is that perhaps our perspective is limited. Perhaps we are not seeing things from the true perspective in which they are. Um... There is an argument that I've seen some people make, and let me go ahead and just lay it out. I don't really feel like this is the best argument in this case. But let's go ahead and lay it out. Um, many folks are going to look at this and be like, all right, listen, here's the deal. Yes, God kills lots of people. And let me just, let me just take a, uh, a quick detour here so you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, aside from the vast number of uh, things in there, we've got lots of different cases in the Old Testament. Let me just highlight three of them in which God is is causing violence. Uh, first, we've got Exodus 34. This is the second list of a different set of Ten Commandments. And yes, it's called the Ten Commandments. I'm not talking about thou shalt not kill. I'm talking about a different set. And the very first one in this is that God's going to talk about all these, these ites in front of the people of Israel as they go into the Promised Land. The Amorite, the Jebusite, the Zedite, and the, his, the Hittite, and all these other kinds of ites they got out there. And God says, you're going to go and destroy them and kill them, annihilate them. This is the first commandment. <laughs> uh, this is of the ten that it comes down to the end. It doesn't say that's the first commandment. But this is the first commandment in that list of God giving instructions to his people as they walk into the promised land. Their job is to annihilate and kill all these people that are inhabiting that land. And not just kill the guys carrying the weapons. No. They're the guys fighting back. They're to kill men, women, children, old men, old women, babies, animals, everything they are to kill and they are to destroy and annihilate the entire culture and all that they are so that there's nothing remaining of them. It is a 100% complete genocide. Multiple genocides. <laughs> to go into multiple different areas. So we've got uh, a lot of things where God is calling his people uh, to go out and just completely genocide a whole other group one. God is not just, for example, on the side of his people, though, because if we read Deuteronomy 28, this is a place where we get a lot of God's very cool blessings, where it's like, hey, 
if you obey me, if you listen to my voice, the blessing will come to you and it will overtake you, which means the blessing is going to come from behind you. You don't have to look for it because if you're looking for me, these things are going to overtake you and you're going to be wealthy and you're going to be healthy and you're going to be filled with joy and abundance and everything's going to be good and you don't need to worry about this or that and he goes down this whole list of all these wonderful things that's going to happen to the people of God. Even if you have enemies that come after you and attack you, they're going to come out to you by one way, and you're going to drive them back, and they're going to run away seven ways. They're going to be scattered. And uh, you're going to be in a position of wealth. You're going to be lending to people, all those kind of great things that um, God is extending these blessings to his people when they listen to his voice and they obey him. However, the part we like to skip over is this little part of little part, it's actually <laughs> two-thirds of the chapter, of curses, where they, where God says, if you do not obey me, if you do not listen to my voice, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to run out of food. You're not going to be healthy. You're going to be um, the same plagues I sent upon Egypt. They're going to become upon you. And it's even going to get to the point where you're going to be eating your own children. And as you eat your own children, even the most dainty woman or man of you is going to be fighting over who gets to eat her own child or her own placenta when she gives birth. She's going to eat it in secret. And then when all these things happen to you, I'm going to be happy. This is going to cause me great pleasure in seeing you suffer because you have not obeyed me because you have not done that. You're going to be oppressed the strangers will come among you and you'll be taken to places that you have never even heard of and they will oppress you and they will make your life as if nothing. And when it's morning, you're going to say, oh, if it was the evening. And when it's the evening, you're going to say, oh, if it, was the, if it was the morning. And this is going to be the curses that you will live under if you do not obey the Lord your God. Ta-da! So, <laughs> those are the curses. And we see many of those curses occur over the course of the history of Israel. I will say they were not immediately done. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, finally, we have the very famous, uh, not so famous, part in Psalms 137, where the people have been not obedient to God. They have been taken captive. They were taken to Babylon, and there they are. They're sitting there, and they're mourning, and they're like, oh, man, God, would you remember us? Would you remember us? We have done wrong. Yes, we repent of having done wrong, having abandoned you, and not obeying you, and now we want to come back to you, but would you remember us now? And would you free us from these oppressors? And finally, you know, at the end of the day, we want to be freed from them, and that you would take vengeance upon them, that you would do all these crazy, horrible things to them, and blessed is the man who picks up a baby, a Babylonian baby, and bashes his head against a rock. Blessed. So, you typically don't see those you know, little uh, Sunday school memory verses, but it's there. It's there. This is something that is not like, wow, okay, this is, <laughs> again, atheists love this kind of stuff. They go after this all the time. Um, and so, obviously, when we see these types of things and we compare it to, you know, all this love and peace, in quotes, uh, that we see in the New Testament, it, it drives us nuts. I'll come to the New Testament in a second. Um, but it, it begins to, to form into this problem, this issue where it's like, who is this deity that's over us? Who is this God who's over us? That he's capable of doing all these good things, but he's capable of doing all these really horrible deaths at the same time. It's like, what in the world is this? Do we really want to be following a deity that can do this? Well, Here's the first argument that you hear. One, the argument that, listen, God is God. 
And the typical way this argument is laid out is saying that, listen, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. If, if God was an evil God, what can we do about it? Nothing. Really, I mean, if, if God really is God and, and he is what he is, even if he's evil, there's absolutely nothing I can do in response to that. I can't fight back against this God. There's no way. There's no way I could I could make a, uh, a fight against this God and, and make him be, stop being evil. No, I just have to accept the fact that he is what he is. Nonetheless, he's not entirely violent all the time. He's the one that gave life, so he's in a position where he can take life as he wishes and as he wills. Uh, the fact that he shows any sort of love to us or any sort of grace or any sort of, any sort of mercy to us is really reflective of who his character is because, man, he could just do whatever he wants. And yet, he doesn't. It seems like his first and foremost desire is, is to do good to us, and yet, um, that doesn't mean he's limited in what he can do, and therefore we see all this violence extended upon the face of the earth from him. Not we're talking. Well, I'm not talking about human-human violence. I'm talking about he is being the originator of this, and so he is within his right to do that. He is within his power to extend violence upon the earth and upon all his creation because he's the one that made it. He's the one that did it, and he can make it happen as he wishes. There's kind of the first argument that God is God. He's going to do whatever he's going to do. What else can I do about it? So that's one way to look at it. Nonetheless, I kind of, uh, I, I don't really think that's the best argument. <laughs> um, if I'm going to talk about why God is violent. Here's my thought on it. One, God makes the world. He makes the world good, correct? And when I get to my other arguments, I'll, I'll come back to this point. But he makes the world good. We mess it up. And yet, uh, his fury doesn't extend out immediately. He is extending grace even in, the, even in the face of offense, even in the face of breaking covenants, even in the face of breaking deals. He does not go back on it and extend justice immediately. Um, there is a sense in which God is slow to anger, as he says about himself. But that does not mean that his anger does not exist. And that does not mean that his anger is not justified. And to say that God can only be love, but to tie his hands behind his back, reduces him to something that he is not. Perhaps our perspective on violence is incorrect. Perhaps we cannot see things as they truly are. And even though this violence to us looks horrible, it looks evil, the suffering we, we endure because of it is in our modern times, is considered one of the worst things ever um, to be completely ignored and to completely be refuted and rejected. Perhaps that's not really God's perspective on it. Perhaps in our zeal to try to make things good in our society, we've actually gone beyond what God has intentioned. Um, especially in Western society... It seems like we've come to celebrate the physical body above anything else. For example, if we're going to talk about raising children, 
the idea that you could spank a child is now considered anathema. It's like, oh my gosh, how would you ever spank a child? You know, and I guess it depends on what region of the country you, you grow up in or where you're at. But um, this idea that, oh no, physical violence, that is wrong. We do not use our fists to solve a problem. We do not use our bodies to solve problems. We use our words. Now, I'm, I'm going to share this perspective with you because this is a cultural perspective. And it's not that one culture is better than the other, but that's exactly the point. It's not that one culture is better than the other. The way that we are walking in is particularly to our culture. That does not necessarily mean that it is the be-all and the end-all. Uh, and yes, we may have proof and science that says this is perhaps better. But again, maybe that's not necessarily true. Uh, I, I share with you my wife's example. My wife grew up in, in Colombia in South America, and, and she was hit and struck multiple times as a child by her parents. Um, and it was funny because she would say these things, and, and she talked about as she was a child growing up, uh, that many times if she did something wrong or one of her brothers or her sister did something wrong, they would be hit. They would be hit either with a hand, they'd be hit with a belt, be hit with a rock, they'd be hit with uh, the, um, a broom, like the stick from the broom, all sorts of different things. Whatever was, was available at the time, that's what was used to, to bring punishment. And it was physical punishment. However, there were moments in which the physical punishment was absent and there's only a verbal punishment. And sometimes her parents would say things that were not necessarily uh, nice. And she said... That both between her and all of her brothers and sisters, they'd say, Mommy, Daddy, I would prefer that you hit me instead of saying those things. Because to them who had experienced this physical violence, the, the act of being hit was physical pain. And yes, there was an emotional reaction to it, but it didn't hit their core being as much as the words. The words were more powerful than being hit by a belts or by a broomstick or anything. Even the other day in Facebook or a while back, I remember seeing uh, in India, they, the police had caught a bunch of uh, thieves on the street. And so what they're doing is they're basically getting a big paddle and they're whomping them on the hiney. And like, I'm not like, you know, a kid, like this is bad. Like blood is being drawn. And then they let him go. It's like, all right, you're gone. You're done. That's your punishment. Go. And in, in, a, in one way, in a sense, I kind of thought, huh, <laughs> they, they're hurt. They've been seriously hurt in a violent way. And yet, do they have to sit in prison for a long time? Is that really going to change them? Probably not. Is this going to change them? Probably not either. But at least that pain is a very psychological reminder of, oof, if I do this, this is what's going to happen. Obviously, there's a lot of issues that need to be addressed there. But what it's saying is, you know, a lot of people I saw from, not the States, but from other places were kind of like, hey, yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that. <laughs> it's just, you did something wrong. You're immediately punished for it. And again, who's who to say? It's the police were actually right in capturing these particular people. They may be innocent. But even then, if they're innocent, they're not losing years of their lives. They're just getting hit in the butt. Um, it's going to hurt to sit down for the next month or two. Um... I mean, yes, I understand, and I'm not promoting this, understand, I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is, within our society, these things sound unimaginable. No! This is the dark ages. This is wrong. This is that, but why? Why do we say that? At what point do we begin to say, no, whatever harm you do to the body is absolutely forbidden. That is the worst thing that can happen. 
as opposed to, well, what about the harm you can do to their mind? Well, it's like, well, you harm the body, you harm the mind. Yes. But the body recovers in some ways if you don't do it wrong. Now, obviously, capital punishment's not different. If you're torturing people and disfiguring people, that's different. I understand that. But what I'm trying to say is uh, perhaps we consider physical pain to be an evil more than it is. And so when we read these stories in the, New, in the Old Testament, we come to it and this just seems abhorrent to us because of this is our own cultural upbringing. This is how we look at it. We say, ooh, this is, this is terrible. This is evil. How could this, this is absolutely impossible. And I, I would wager that back in that day, that was not necessarily their perspective on things. I don't think when kids got in a fight, it was like, now, 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 kids, use your words. No, I don't think that's how they were thinking about things. Uh... And I can tell you, even, you know, ancient cultures are incredibly violent cultures. Ridiculously violent cultures. I mean, it's not hard to look back either between indigenous cultures here in the Americas or you look at, at ancient cultures in the Middle East or anywhere. We're talking high levels of violence. Very, very violent. Um, both in their stories, both in how uh, their upbringing, how they treated people that were not... Uh, model examples of citizenry, they were extremely violent. And so when God is interacting with his people at this time, when everyone is extremely violent, he's also a God of war. And he is also a God who is not afraid to use the methods and the means of his day in order to accomplish his purposes in the world. Um... When we look at this, this is a way that we can see that, you know, when he's, when God is celebrated in the Old Testament, it's like David came out with, you know, with God's hand, he was able to kill thousands, tens of thousands, all just thousands. And this is a good thing because, hey, these enemies, these guys, they want to kill us. They want to undo us. And, and at the end of the day, you know, whether you, you know, by the time we get to the Sadducees, Pharisees, there's a debate where there's an afterlife. But in the days of, of David, he's pretty clear. It's like, if I'm dead, if I go down to Sheol, if I go down to the grave, how am I going to praise you? How's it going to happen? Who's going to hear that you are God over all if I'm dead? So if you want to be praised, Lord, you got to keep me alive. Deliver me from these people that want to take my life. They don't know you. <laughs> they are not going to praise you. They're going to praise their own gods made of wood and stone and who knows what all else. They are not going to be looking after you. They are only going to be looking after themselves. And they are not going to glorify your name in all the earth. And so David's call is a call to violence, to a call of death to his enemies, because they are not going to make God's name bigger in all the earth. And so God gives David many victories. He also gives David a lot of defeats, and David suffers, and he willingly suffers. That's kind of funny, the story where uh, this man comes up and starts throwing rocks at him. After Absalom uh, takes the kingdom and everyone's with David's like, David, should we kill this guy? He's like, no, maybe God has sent this guy to actually do this to us. And so do not do evil to him. Do not kill him. Let him do what he's doing. And so this man throws rocks at David while he's leaving the kingdom and just yells at him and insults him. And David takes it <laughs> because David is a man who's killed lots of people, lots of people. Um, and yet, uh, David knew there was a time not to kill. So what I'm trying to say here at the end of the day is that violence is a tool within God's 
toolbox. He is not limited to only sitting down, talking things out, and being reconciled. No. He can use violence to do this. If we look at the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is like, hey, these guys are evil. They're doing evil to us. And God says, don't worry about it. I got a plan. What's the plan? I'm going to raise up this other kingdom, and they're going to be even worse than them, and they're going to wipe them out. And Habakkuk says, uh, but what about them? They're evil. Okay, so you have evil A. Evil B is greater than evil A, and so evil B wipes out evil A. God says, don't worry, I got another plan. I got evil C, and they're even worse, and I'll take out evil B. And Habakkuk says, ah, uh, <laughs> and really there's no resolution to this. <laughs> there is no resolution. It's not like, oh, and then, you know, evil C just kind of dies out. That, that's not what happens here. God is using violence as a tool to accomplish his purposes within the world. And we see this within the Old, within the Old Testament very clearly. Um, we can say that when God tells his own people to go and wipe out these other peoples, he even says that he has waited for their sin to become complete, that they are now so evil, so bent and just entwined upon themselves that now their day has come and so God is going to completely undo them. That's it. Um, so now he's using his people to execute his judgments upon these other peoples because he is judging these other peoples and that is how God is going to do it, using his own people in this case, or he'll use other peoples to do it. So at the same time, and we'll talk about this next time, that violence doesn't necessarily end. It just continues and continues and continues. And so it's just one wiping out another, which wipes out another, which wipes out another. And it seems like God is okay with that. Um, I, I kind of feel like God takes this bigger perspective because if we, we value our lives so much, we value our own lives so much, uh, maybe we're not looking at the bigger perspective. I, I think God is looking at this and then, you know, and I know a lot of these people are like, well, if God's our prophet, why doesn't he do this? Well, it's because he's given us choices. We make these choices and a lot of this we're reaping ourselves. And so he's bringing about this control here. Think of a gardener. A gardener plants his garden. He sets everything up. Everything's going well, but then, you know, something screws up. And something goes wrong in the garden. Um, and now the garden is working against him. And so now, if he sees one plant is beginning to take over too much of the other stuff, what he wants there, he's got to rip that plant out. And it may be he has to rip it out completely because its own nature is just to invade and to destroy everything else that's around it. And so God puts the kavosh on that and says, nope, no more. And now we're actually going to uh, let something else take its place. He's looking after the good of the entire garden as per se. And that means that something's got to go. Um, and so this violence is a way in which he can do that. Is it tragic people die? Absolutely, yes. And if anyone feels it more than anybody else, trust me, it's God. These are all his children. All of them. He's very aware and intimately connected with the world in itself. Which is why I think if we see anything, God is very slow to use violence. Not quick. You know, he could prevent things immediately, but it's like, I, I kind of get the impression he's like, and, and it, it's one of those things, it's, it's kind of like, you got to do it, but it, he's holding out until the very last moment, which implies suffering, implies people are getting hurt by evil people. People are suffering at the hands of evil people, and yet God is, is hoping that the evil will stop, and they'll do that, even though he knows it won't, and so he acts at the right time, or in his time to make that happen. Um injustices are being committed. There is violence being done person to person, not from God's perspective, but from person to person. And at some point God says, 
no, that's enough. I, I, even though he loves everyone completely, and I'm not saying God is not love. He is a God of love. And I think that love is really the root of all his violence. His love is there and he's saying, ah, I can't take this anymore because I'm losing, seeing too much suffering of my children. I, I just, I got to do it. And so he acts in such a way. Now, sadly, people get very stubborn. And so I think God can see when that happens in our hearts, that we are beyond, beyond the, the possibility of return. We're beyond the possibility of repentance. We're beyond the, the chance that we could actually turn back and go to God. If anyone can make that judgment, it's only God. And yet God, I think even if we cross that line, he's still giving time, hope among hope that it would happen before he pulls the card and says, nope, it's time to stop this. And how does he do it? Violence. Um, again, coming back to the argument, he is in his right. He is in his right to do it. He can, he can, there's nothing against it. And nonetheless, most of the time he chooses not to. Now, in the two minutes I have remaining, there's not a discrepancy between Old Testament and New Testament. Violence continues. Uh, we just don't have a history book necessarily in the New Testament that includes it. For example, Jerusalem gets razed to the ground and destroyed by the Romans 70 AD. That is violence. Jesus even says, hey, all this thing is going to come down. He's crying over Jerusalem. He says, listen, you guys don't get it. If you guys would repent and actually believe in him, then this wouldn't happen. But he knows it's going to happen. And again, God is slow in his vengeance. He is slow in his violence. Um, and so even though Jesus is killed by his own people shouting, crucify him, God does not come down right two seconds after the crucifixion and zap him. No, that's not how it works. He lets it build for a time before he actually makes it occur completely. And, and I think in a large way, he's trying to get everyone he can into the church so that they can escape, uh, this, this coming destruction. John the Baptist is like, Hey, the ax is at the root of the trees. If you do not repent, if you do not produce good fruit, you're coming down. And we see that happen, 70 AD. The axe comes down and destroys everything. Many, many, many thousand people killed in that act. This is New Testament. If if God had really changed and be like, ah, oh, no, Jesus is here, we're going to stop, then, then why didn't he stop that? He's like, oh, let's just sit down and talk about it. No, there's, there's, a, there's a consequence that's coming after that. Jesus has this prophetic role, just like any Old Testament prophet that's saying, listen, repent. If you repent, God will do well. But if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And they didn't. Um, additionally, uh, we can see many acts also, even within acts as well. We see um, Ananias and Sapphira killed because they were not giving as they were supposed to. They're giving something else. We can talk about... Um, Simon the magician as well. Peter's like, listen, if you don't do this, you know, maybe God will have mercy on it. That's that's not really bad. So let me let me scratch that. I'm sorry. I'm under the gun right now. At the very end of all time, we see Jesus come back. His clothes are dipped in blood. Looks like his own blood, but still, he's on a white horse. He comes back. Sword comes out of his mouth. Kills everybody. Everybody's dead. Bam. Done. At the end of time, God's going to do this violence. And the fact that even hell exists, that people are going to be suffering and apart from God because they've chose to do that and he lets that continue. Violence. So violence is part within the who God is. That's what he's got. It's part of, part of who he is. And to deny that part of his character is wrong. Um, we've got to let God be God. 
He's going to do what he's going to do, and he is to receive all the glory and the goodness of it. That is not his defining characteristic by any means, but we cannot take that away from him either. He is a God of war. He is a God of victory. Um, he wants to love, and I think even in his violence, that's where his love is. But we may not have the eyes to actually see it. There it is. There's my dialectic. God of war. Take it for what it is. All right. Be blessed. Have a great week. Do well. Do not be violent. We're going to talk about our role in all this, and that's different from God's role. So hold up one second. Um, put those put those pitchforks down. <laughs> we'll get back to you next week. Have a great week. Be blessed. See you soon.